Welcome to Manufacturing Matters, a podcast sponsored by Simsbury Bank. Hello again. This is Martin Geitz, CEO and President of Simsbury Bank, bringing you another episode of Simsbury Bank's Manufacturing Matters, a podcast that brings important topics and expert guests to family business owners and small and medium-sized businesses across our great state of Connecticut and beyond. Today, I am just delighted to be with Jill Mayer, CEO of Bead Industries. This is a fifth-generation, family-owned manufacturing company headquartered in Milford, Connecticut. And Beverly Dacey, who is a president and CEO of Amodex. She is the second generation and has children, so the third generation is also involved with uh, running that company based in Bridgeport, Connecticut. Welcome. Delighted to have you here. I wonder if we could start by having each of you just describe your company and what you do and what you manufacture. And maybe, Jill, do you want to go first? Sure. Um, so, Bede is uh, headquartered in Milford, and uh, my great-great-grandfather started the business with his son in 1914. My great-great-grandfather helped patent and design the um, first enclosed electric knife switch, So, and that led to um, the electric light pole that some people may still have in their cellar basements or closets. And that, the development of that, led to um, designing the machine to mass produce it. The chain had already been invented in Austria, but they hadn't figured out a way to mass produce it. And then um, right around that time, World War was happening, and there were, overnight, there was a national market for the chain. Mm. We no longer manufacture the chain, but we uh, we have a relationship with a former competitor in Asia that manufactures the chain on our machines, and we manage the quality and the customer service. Um, our other division is Beat Electronics. That's where we do all of our manufacturing um, in Milford there. Um, millions and millions of pins a year, small little metal bits, but we use the same process that we used for the chain, which is called swaging. And uh, that's an alternative to screw machining and um, stamping. And what it is, is it's... Um, it's a unique cold-forming metal process, so we're, re- we're moving metal, not removing it the way that stamping would, so there's no scrap. Mm-hmm. And yes, so we make the electronic contact pins. Some of them are tubular or hollow, but 100 pounds of metal goes into the machine and 100 pounds of metal comes out. So we can be very custom and cost-effective and quick, which you don't always hear in the same sentence. Our markets are um, automotive sensors, um, specialty lighting, military, medical. We have, um, you know, connectors and um, telecom. So, and then we have our wholly owned subsidiary in Cheshire, which is a producer of commercial plumbing fixture trim, which is essentially everything underneath the sink, the P-trap, the elbows, the, and that's from the commercial market. So hotels and casinos and hospitals are, are where we sell our products. And so Beverly, could you tell us a little bit about Amadex? What do you manufacture and what's the story of its evolution? We are uh, kind of a single purpose uh, company in that we manufacture stain removal products. And uh, the company evolved from a, a, a need in the 50s. My father started the company in 1958. At the time he was in the printing business. And he worked a lot with, you know, at that that time, Bridgeport, of course, was a thriving industrial mecca and had companies like Jill's as an account. And he he did a lot of um, services for the industrial sector in Bridgeport. What they realized at that time, they didn't have uh, copy machines. Everything was done, mimeograph carbon. 
in the offices, in the schools, and the, mm-hmm. everywhere. And and it was dirty, ugly, gross stuff that would get on your hands, get on your clothes. You couldn't get it off. And so he and a chemist friend developed a, a formula to remove that. And that was the beginning of Amidex. And he sold in those days just B2B. That was his world. And it was, uh, he, it was national, but obviously in Connecticut, because we were a thriving industrial mecca, you know, he had more business than he, he, he knew what to do with. And then um, over time, things changed, and buying trends changed, and industry changed, and things started to dry up. And he realized that um, the product had far more varied application than just taking out ink and mimeo and carbon and those things. And you fast forward uh, to, to where we are now, the two fascinating things about his product are that the formula, because being uh, you, some, a product that you could use on skin necessitated that it be a soap formula. Hmm. So we are the only soap formula stain remover in the world. And by virtue of that, it's very mild. So I kind of laugh now and say dad was green before green became trendy. <laughs> uh, the other cool thing about the product is that most people probably don't know, but we get two types of stains. We either get oil-based stains or we get dye-based stains. Stain removal products out there will remove some of the oil-based stains. Others will remove some of the dye-based stains, but none do both. And none of them can be used on both washable and dry-cleanable fabrics. So turns out that Amidex has this unique niche, not only in terms of its formula, but by virtue of its formula, what it works on. And so consequently, if you're a mom, as Jill and I are and others particularly, and you're doing your laundry and you don't know what the heck your kids got on their clothes, which is very common, you don't have to worry about it because Amidex works on both. And um, what really put the company on the map uh, a while back was that we developed a relationship with Newell Brands, who makes Sharpie. Mm-hmm. And it turned out Amidex takes out Sharpie. And nothing takes out Sharpie. Right. Permanent markers, after Correct. all, right? Yeah. And, and it took a while for the marketing people at Newell to, um, to, to, to come to terms with partnering with a company that took out something that they claimed was permanent. Erasing the permanent right. marker. I love it. So you mentioned that the company started by focusing B2B, but along the way... It had to reinvent it had to, itself. It had to reinvent itself and go B2C. So wh- when did that transition happen from just focusing on the business market to begin to focus on it's, the consumer market? It too? started in the 80s. It kind of shifted more into the 90s. And then by the 2000s, it, it, it blew up. Yeah. It, it, there was no question that that's where it had to go. Yeah. And particularly as particularly as, as manufacturing was leaving the U.S., you mm. know, that everything was drying up, buying, buying patterns were changing, right. and the... Big operations really had no place for sing- what they considered, you know, single skew limited vendor companies, which right. we small businesses are. Yep. And so that really cut off the uh, the the lifeline. And uh, I have to say, though, if you if you have a good product, the um, the internet has become your best friend because you don't have to talk about products anymore. People talk about it. Well, Jill, um, uh, maybe we talk a little bit about being the fifth generation business owner and how has your company been able to, you know, one of the sort of uh, old saws is that, uh, you know, getting getting a family business to the second generation is, you know, often happens. Getting it to the third generation is less likely to happen and getting it beyond the third generation is really unlikely. And, and you're the fifth generation. How, how has your family 
uh, been able to accomplish that. Yeah, no, no, I hear that odds are 500 to 1 with that. <laughs> wow, um, wow. But I'm incredibly lucky because uh, when my father handed me the reins of the company, it was in great shape. And um, our electronics division was growing. Our All the environmental cleanup from the Bridgeport building was behind us. We'd established a board of directors who'd been guiding my father through the succession planning process and then was mentoring me. And we had and continue to have no debt. So I'm grateful to have started with that solid foundation. I have colleagues who inherited their family business in the midst of financial difficulties or management issues, and I can't even imagine that. Um, so uh, really, it was the antiquated systems and the technology that stuck in my mind as something that was the most pressing issue. So, uh, sh you know, shortly after <clears throat> I came to the business 12 years ago, we started um overhauling the technology. And in the last few years, we've um, implemented a new ERP system at both companies, which has given us better visibility into our operations and has been really great. Also in my leadership role, we've had a number of retirements happen and continue to happen. So we'll be seeing more of that over the next few years. But as we prepare to lose talented people that who've worked at our companies, our company for decades, it's been my goal to continue the the business, ensure the continuity of the business, not just in terms of skill set, um, but in terms of our culture. Um, so how I'm going to preserve the legacy of the family business is by continuing to run an honest, hardworking manufacturing company um, and ensure that people that we hire fit the, um, the high integrity, high curiosity culture that we've created. Mm, terrific, terrific. As you were, you know, descri describing the company's uh, uh, evolution, uh, I couldn't help but, you know, uh, hear a theme of innovation. It sounds like you have, over the years, found new ways to do things. You mentioned that you've, you know, you now have a manufacturer of the original product that's overseas, but you retain uh, a, a role in making sure that it's the quality and so forth. And so you've 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 changed over the years. How how important has innovation been to the success of your company? I mean, it's 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 been critical, and I think um, my dad's mantra was always, you know, adapt or die, mm -hmm. you know. And what I'm sort of coming to terms with is innovate or die, because you can adapt to the market and and around you, but you have to also keep moving forward. And we talk a lot about Industry 4.0, and um, what's coming down um, the pipeline in terms of technology. When I took the reins from my father, I was never told here you know, here you go, don't do anything drastic, don't break the company. Um, basically, and ironically, that's what not to do, is to just sit there and let and kind of ride it out. Um, so it's always been a trial and error process for us. Mm -hmm. Let's try this new product. Let's check out this new market. So I think there, it's just an innovative culture that was already there that we're continuing. That's that's how I think you stick around. Well, I, I would add to what Jill's saying yeah. that I think the common denominator she and I share, and my story is polar opposite to hers in, ter in terms of where the company was when I took it over. But I think that when your family businesses, the value system of the family gets integrated into your company and it permeates everything around it to to really be part of your mission and that 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 commitment to that kind of entrepreneurial spirit of innovation is really in your DNA. Mm -hmm. So as you as you know it goes from generation to generation, it's something you don't even have to teach anyone because it just gets passed on through how we all interact with each other and and so 
the need for innovation isn't something that even you have to talk about because everybody is always talking about it and recognizes how important it is to be constantly in that in that mode, yeah. but also recognizing that you can't compromise where you are and what you're doing in any way that would uh, devalue your efforts and your and your and your and your mission. Yeah, would yeah. you agree? Exactly. Yeah. And you're both talking about the culture of your organizations, mm-hmm. the culture yes. of your company. It's very unique. It's yeah. a very unique experience. Yeah. Do you think about culture as you're leading the company every day? Do you think about how we do things and how we communicate and what our values yes. are? Do every you... day. And particularly in my company because we are um, a problem solver. So, for example, when we moved to our new facility, we hemmed and hawed about what to do with fo- something as simple as your phone system. And then we all decided, you know what, nothing makes us all crazier than when you call someplace and you have to press one, press seven, press six. You can't even get to where you're trying to go. You're not sure how to connect to who you need to connect to. And I would say the majority of our phone calls are customers calling in with issues. They're not sure if the product's suitable. And so we all decided that, no, there will always be a voice that answers the phone and there will always be someone there to solve that person's problem immediately. Yeah. yeah. And I think, again, it, it, it's rooted in your 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 whole value system. Mm-hmm. Yeah, remarkable, remarkable. You both have spoken how important that is to. Well, I think especially today because companies. we feel so disenfranchised. Like, doesn't anybody care? Um, Jill, I understand that you have a great anecdote about uh, how an investment in one piece of equipment can really create momentum for the company. Do you want to share that with us? Yeah, so um, we recently purchased uh, a new CNC machine. It's a vertical um machining center. And we had an old used one um, that was really on its last leg, which just most like like most other equipment in our factory. Um, but we were evaluating the purchase of a new one. And we heard about the Manufacturing Innovation Fund, in particular, the Manufacturing Voucher Program, which is one piece of the fund. And um, and I believe that's through the DECD. Bev will tell you more. But so we, we said, okay, you with those funds, we could probably purchase this one, which had even more functionality um, and just was exciting. So um, fast forward, we got the machine, we put it in our shop, and it's we put it in dead center in the middle of our whole plant. And it's this giant space shuttle in the middle <laughs> in the middle of all of this an- antiquated equipment. So and it created all this buzz and excitement in our tool room and and for our machine operators as well, um, especially for our millennial toolmaker apprentice and and you know so it was just great, and that got us excited about kind of re revamping uh, our tool room and overhauling our benches and our um, cabinets and different things, and. And that's kind of dovetailed now into, all right, let's look at our next generation um, machine because we have about 80 presses. And these are all from our old four-story building in Bridgeport. Some of them refurbished chain machines into electronic machines, electronic um, pin machines. (laughs) And we've slapped computers and devices and all sorts of things. And it's literally lipstick on a pig at this point. (laughs) So um, we have these 80 machines, but only 12 to 15 are running at any given time. And if we had um, smaller machines, we we could have more of them. And um, we could have more running at the same time. So um, by the end of this year, we hope to have a prototype for our next generation machine. And again, all of this really just dominoed from the CNC machine that we got this um, grant money from. So it was really exciting. Yeah, that's a great story. That's a great story about uh, how 
innovation and manufacturing processes is part of the key to the success as well. Have you had similar experiences, Bev? Well, as I was saying earlier, the evolution of Amadex is different from bead in that the transition from B to B to B to C proved very challenging for my dad. So when I came in, the company was not thriving at all. And it was, and my family and I decided together that we were going to take this opportunity and bring Amidex at the B2C level where it was with the B2B level, which meant a tremendous amount of, of, of change and innovation. And I, I call Amidex a restartup because it has a lot of the fundamentals of a startup, but it had a history. And you could use that history as your springboard. And I, and I say this to anybody, I think, who's dealing with a company and the challenges of running companies, because you can do that. It just takes a lot of, of create, create creativity. And in our case, where we were in Bridgeport, we had seriously outlived our life expectancy in the facility we're in, as well as with our machinery. Same kind of problem Jill was having. But everything was sufficient, as long as it's sufficient, you know, it's, it's, the, it's the old Yankee mindset. You don't replace it unless you have to. So we finally, through um, opportunities that the state was offering and, and lending opportunities and such, we were able to, bu to buy a new building and move, relocate. And we made the decision at that time that if we possibly could, the best thing was to replace all of our machinery because it really was old. Um, and, and, and today the technology is, is, is so far more advanced and the production capabilities that it would provide us were enormous. So we, and unfortunately one of my sons is an engineer, so he's perfectly wired for all this. <laughs> and I think if ever God knew what he was doing, he knew what he was doing by the way he DNA'd all my four kids because each one is very different in terms of talent and no one wants to do what the other one does. So there's no competition That's going terrific. on over there. <laughs> but long story short, um, the, the, we were able through Business Express, the State Business Express program, which was a combination grant and um, loan program. And the loan is, a, and the grant is a matching fund. So you had to have of a dollar for dollar match in order to get that funding. And we were able to do that through a bank line of credit, which was spectacular because it helped us have all put together the, um, the patchwork quilt we needed to make it happen. And I think it shows the value of public private collaboration and how that can help foster um, economic growth in our state. And I think we are a poster child for that because we were able to utilize um, both that opportunity and then the Manufacturers Innovation Fund voucher program opportunity to buy our new machinery. And as I've said to my family, you have to reinvent yourself every five years yep. to stay relevant. There's no question about it. And every third year, you have to start getting yourself into that mindset, okay, where are we going now? Where, what needs to be changed? And how are we going to get there? But I think the um, the public-private collaboration is pivotal mm -hmm. to the kinds of growth that we can all aspire to. So your company is really a beneficiary of and, and a sign of success of the economic development programs that the state has. Well, I think I think the critical factor in all this, and, and I suspect Jill would – I expect she would agree with me, is that you don't – you're not going to take these risks if you don't feel – 100% confident yep. that you're going to 
achieve success. Yeah. That that you these are not things you do cavalierly or casually. You do them with great purpose, and that purpose yields great results. And that's the whole goal here. We want to yield results so that the state can grow, the economy can grow, people can have jobs, and we can all work together as a community yeah. to encourage um, the kind of development we know we have out there for us. That's terrific. Jill. And I, well, I was just going to also add its point was to reduce our lead time from two to three weeks down to two to three days. So what happened is we used to do plating and slitting at our old facility in Bridgeport. So when when we would outsource um, uh, plating to um, outside vendors in the state, um, we would have to be waiting around and and we would add that to our lead time. So... um, so having a shorter lead time helps with with new customers, and um, customers expect faster, better mm-hmm. now. So, you know, that's in keeping with the model. So it was customer driven, of course, yeah. but but you know, a wonderful side benefit was that it really brought up the morale and excitement of the future for our company. Were were any of the state economic development programs involved with your acquisition of the CNC machine or other investments that you've made? Um, so the manufacturing voucher program, but there's also another piece of the manufacturing innovation fund is the apprenticeship program, mm. and that's been really helpful. Um, so we do terrific, that. terrific. Um, I'm just curious, you know. So, so you know, we hear a lot about, and you know, it's been in the news recently that there are another large Connecticut-based company is going to move its headquarters to Boston. So, uh, you know, one of the concerns that I think everyone has is that you know other businesses will leave the state for a variety of reasons. You've just talked about how the state has been, you know, supportive of your companies. Um, you know, you're both though national and international companies, so you're aware of what else is happening in the world and and other places you could do your business. Businesses. So what what keeps you here? What keeps you in Connecticut? Um, so I, I don't want to speak for Bev, but but we are of a similar nature <laughs> in that, uh, you know, the, the grants and the funding is great and I will take advantage of it if it's there. I think that we probably wouldn't need those grants and fundings if um, if, you know, Connecticut was a more business friendly sure. state. Sure. So um, so while those things are helpful, um you know, if I had to choose, <laughs> it would probably need, not maybe not needing the aid. I don't know, Bev. I, I you know, for, for me personally, um, my my personality by nature is that I'm persistent. And um, in the early '80s, I had the experience of living in communist Romania for a year. No kidding! Wow, which was an enormous education, and it enlightened me so much to what opportunities we do have in this country, and we can do whatever we want if we put our minds to it. Um, Living there and living in other parts of the country, I mean, I came back to Connecticut. I lived in Massachusetts for a time and chose to come back to Connecticut to raise my my children. And I think Connecticut is a spectacular state with enormous numbers of assets that are not, that are underutilized. And we... um, we, we business owners are perceived as, as the boogeyman, and we're not. If anything, I think we are um, amazing partners within our community, and we love our community. Yeah. And when we, we're, when we were thinking of moving, I will be honest and tell you that we thought long and hard about leaving. Mm-hmm. And then the persistent per- personality in me kicked in and said, if you leave and everybody else leaves after all these years of you being a, a Connecticut-based, Bridgeport-based business, what's going to be left? Yeah. And that was another reason why I also decided to 
devote some time to this fund was to become an ambassador for the state to other businesses and to develop relationships that I saw my father had in the early years. It made a huge impression on me when I was a child, how he would be going around Bridgeport and he'd go out to the store or go do an errand and everybody knew everybody and they all helped each other and all these businesses shared their talents with each other. And that's how they all became extraordinarily successful. Mm -hmm. And I thought, wait a minute, why aren't we doing that? Well, one of the reasons we're not doing it is because there aren't enough of us. So we need to all partner and we need to all support each other. And I think then that becomes um, a, a, a beautiful, it becomes a big a PR tool for the state mm-hmm. to see that what's going on in the dynamics. The other piece of it too is that when I took over the company, it was just before the recession. And needless to say, that really was a gut punch um, because I was watching a lot of my suppliers closing up. And and then I mean, I'm thinking, oh boy, what do I do now? I don't want to be last man. I, I want to be last man standing, not first man out. So I made the decision to source all of my materials from U.S. suppliers. And I made that decision twofold. One, uh, because I wanted to support other small businesses in the country who I knew were struggling just the way we were through the recession. And then I also said I never want to be beholden to overseas suppliers Mm -hmm. because I thought I could see that could become a dangerous precipice, particularly with intellectual property. So um, I did that. And fast forward, here we are today. People facing some really serious challenges with cybersecurity, with sure. IP, with re, re, you know access to resources, supply chain, yeah. and um, what we have here in Connecticut and what we have here in New England, what we have here in the states, is uh, a vast amount of resources that I think we are beginning to now finally retap. Mm-hmm. And the Connecticut, particularly for exporting, is a spectacular location. It's very easy to get your goods out of here, yep. and it's very cost effective. Again, though, I think some of these some of these assets are being overlooked by the state. And if they could work with us instead of against us, I think we would see tremendous growth. Do you agree? Or? Yes, definitely. Um, with 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 things that aren't aren't being highlighted for sure. I would also just add that, um, you know, we wouldn't be in business today if we didn't treat our employees wonderfully. And um, our employees are so good to us and we reciprocate. So some of the, you know, the, the minimum wage, which we have nobody that's at under $15 anyway. But what what they'll probably think is, well, if this unskilled brand new person right into the workforce is making 15, then why am I making 17 and 18? Mm-hmm. I should be making way more. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's how the, 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 the minimum wage hike over four years hurts us. Not not that we're not already paying our people, I think, a very competitive wage. And then same thing with the paid um, Family Medical Leave Act. Right. We have wonderful disability. We have parental leave even for dads. We have, we have just a, I think, a really competitive, really admirable benefits package. I'm gonna have to dial that down. Well, what bothered me the most about the the, the act was that it removed from us as employers the ability to be flexible, which we as small business owners that I think is the key yeah. to everything that makes us different and better is that your employees are more than just somebody you give a paycheck to. Right. And they're people who you care about. They care about you. And everybody works as a team. Yeah. And this idea that somehow we're not we're taking advantage of the employee, employees um, is, is, is just ludicrous. It's the other way around. So now by legislating, 
they're making it harder, not easier for us to give our employees what we want to give them because they're going to come in here and just say, well, this is what the law says. This is what I want. And that's that. Rather than saying, hey, let's figure this out. What's going to work for you? What's going to work for us? We want everything to to, to flow. And it always does. Right. And now, particularly with the issues that we all know exist in the workplace with regard to millennials mm-hmm. and how they seek flexibility, right. they have actually, in my mind, undermined one of the better uh, resources the state could have been offering the millennials to make it more attractive to come to Connecticut. Right. Now it's going to be the other way around because now we can't have that flexibility anymore. It's been legislated. It seems like that their hearts are in the right place, but there's all these unintended consequences exactly. that if they could just get with the business community and understand it, I think that they would yeah. have the better solutions. We'd all benefit from that. Absolutely. absolutely. Well, and I know in our case, um, I sat down with my family because now, you know, it's an added tax. We have the pension requirement. We now have the family, med- we have the minimum wage, all these added burdens placed on us all tied to hiring. Right. We're just going to be bringing in temp help. Mm-hmm. That that is the you know financially in the best interest of the company right. because in the end if the company isn't thriving no one no one benefits correct yeah and if the company isn't thriving there are no jobs and there correct. is no so so these are jobs so what they didn't realize is these are job busters yeah that that, that, that but through natural selection if you think about it works itself out. If you're a crummy employer and you don't pay your people well, and there's a shortage of labor, right. you're going out of business because they're going to work over at this company. Right. So right. I, you don't have to put up these mandates. No one will work there anyway, or you'll get really unskilled labor and the company will go down the tube. So all of those things, I feel like, would work themselves out. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and you think about it, we're at historically low unemployment rates. So just to your point, there's a job for everyone who wants a job and wants to work in and uh, in today's world, which actually maybe is a nice segue into workforce and workforce development. And uh, you know, uh, Connecticut has a, a, a community college system, has a state university system, system, and of course UConn. And I'm wondering how important is the state's investment, as well as of course high schools and and uh, you know secondary schools that are all uh, operated at the uh, municipal level. But how important is the state's focus on workforce development to your success today and in the future? Um, I think it's it's vital. I think um, my father was um, very active um, uh, visiting Votex schools in the area. He was involved in the NHMA, the New Haven Manufacturers Association, and METAL, the Manufacturers Education and Training Alliance. And both of those organizations help try to pair companies with Um, local technical high schools or advanced manufacturing centers at different community colleges. Um, For our 100th anniversary, my father set up an endowment for students at the AMC at Housatonic Community College. Mm. And that's where we found our previous and our current toolmaker apprentice. Mm. Um, And we think training um, those those kids um, is how we're going to grow and innovate as well, because um, you just, you can't find the toolmakers anymore. Um, You know, we're all fighting over the few that are left. But um, we also um, host student tours several times a year, trying to help dispel the myth of the dark, dirty, and dangerous. And um, I mean, even if our, some of our machines are a bit antiquated, it's bright, it's clean, and our, we have happy people behind those machines working them. So I, I think that, you know, we open our doors and it's, it's our, it's how we can do our part to help kind of clear that. But um, we can't do that without partnering. We had um, Emmett O'Brien Technical High School, Steve Orlowski's, um kids come. And um, I think it's absolutely important to 
partner with the, with the students and the because it's it's the it's about the community Bev was talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, if we want these kids too to stay in the state, um, let's show them. Let's let's open up the door and show them what's inside. I think. Well, it's an interesting question, and it's something I've been thinking about a lot in the last couple of weeks because an economist colleague, a friend of mine, and I are going are writing a paper on apprentice programs in the U.S. and what went, what went wrong with regard to workforce. Mm. And uh, we're giving it in Korea in a couple of weeks. And it's given me an opportunity to really delve into a lot of what's um, gone on internationally, nationally, and locally. And at the center of it, is the realization that this focus on um, high school education that is college-bound mm-hmm. led us down a um, limiting, limiting path. Yep. And consequently, the, the employers, particularly in manufacturing, were not being tapped with regard to what their future needs were going to be. And the uh, simultaneous to the demise of the voc tech schools and vocational training in the comprehensive high schools. So you had the perfect storm for, and then you have, you know, baby boomers retiring. So we're we're having the perfect storm for a dearth of a population to come in and fill all these voids. In the meantime, we have a lot of young people who have tremendous talent that isn't rooted in being quote unquote college bound. Right. And so at, at the core of, the paper we're writing is actually, for me, the change in lexicon and not referring anymore to workforce development as such, but calling it career development. Mm-hmm. That today, things are moving at such a rapid pace. The choices you make with regard to the road you put yourself on for a pathway for employment is a career. It's not, quote unquote, work. Right. And the manufacturing sector itself is so dynamic it's changing constantly, and as you said, you're, the, the, these companies are innovating so quickly that um, they are as attractive in many ways as um, Silicon Valley with regard to the technology, technological advancements. But we don't have the people prepared to do that kind of dynamic work, and that, that now we're trying to play catch up. Yeah. And in Connecticut, in particular. Because we have always been a little bit snobby <laughs> about making sure, you know, our kids go to college, um, that we were losing sight of um, that big population of young people who had other interests and who now are, were finally putting the wheels in motion to address and to try, try to create some pathways. But critical to that is working in partnership with with the companies to make sure the skills that these young people are securing are relevant. And that's yeah. where the, I think the manufacturing pipeline initiative that started over in the Eastern region of Connecticut, um, they're mapping that to the different regions because basically it's each region has its own unique set of needs of the skills. And so rather than just a one size fits all throughout the state, they say, okay, this region is, uh, you know, metal forming. Mm-hmm. Um, this region is, um, you know, welding. So what they're trying to do is make sure that um, they're talking to the business owners about what they need and then the working together with the teachers to create the curriculum. Because what's happening is, is the VOTEC students will come through and will say, well, where's their basic, you know, micrometer skills? Where's the fractions? Where's the, you know, how are, you know, they need to at least have some 
some knowledge of, of the basics before I can put them in my factory. It's a safety concern. Well, and, and as and as we know, as public education over the last couple of decades has 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 evolved, we know that our young um, young graduates are lacking in what are called soft skills. And that is is as problematic as their technical skills sure, sure. and the critical thinking, the problem solving, all of that. And now I think this is forcing the public education world to really reexamine what it is that's going on in the classroom so that both both arms are working in yeah. in, in, in a in, 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 in partnership to, to assure that these young people will be able to meet the, the needs of what's going forward so they have careers right so that right. so that they can they can continue to, be, to, to stay involved and um, it, and it's, it's, it's a it's a big challenge. Uh, you look at other parts of the of the world Switzerland and Germany and New Zealand they they have this thing nailed they do and they did for a long time yep. and we I think, we diverged, yes. In part too, because so much manufacturing had left our country. Yeah. I know I can tell you, being on the on this fund, I'm the non aerospace mm-hmm. member of the board, right? And so I'm the only person who has you know cons- who represents small business in a consumer product sector, right? So I'm kind of odd man out. And I've always been as one of my board, fellow board members. He kind of he calls me the disruptor because nine times out of ten, the the, the con- conversations get back to what I call A and D, yeah. aerospace and defense, because yeah. that's at the core of Connecticut's economy. However, I think that that's also led to some of the problems we have because we have, and and places like Pratt have certainly invested in apprentice training, incumbent training, and and tra- they because they've had to. And because the gov- the, the nationally, you know, our federal government recognizes that aerospace and defense are our strategic sectors for our country, that they have been drivers. But now that driver has expanded our awareness to many more sectors that have those needs like yours and mine that are equally as, as demanding, if yeah. not more so. And so what do you do? Because the, you barely have the infrastructure in place for A&D. And then what do you do now to segue that to the other sectors? Yeah. But you need to solve that problem. And, you know, in prior uh, Manufacturing Matters broadcasts or podcasts, we've had guests who, uh, you know, from the community college system, Jim Lambella from Asnodak Community College, we've had uh, other manufacturers who uh, are in businesses that are actually more supporting uh, consumer products uh, uh, like Joe Vrabley, Joe Vrabley's company up in Waterbury. And everything you're speaking about, uh, you know, the folks on the education side are, are recognizing the issues that you're talking about. So I feel as though there is sort of a coming coalescence of, all right, we've all identified the problem. Now let's really work harder on getting to the right solutions. Well, I am extremely excited personally um, and had seen a need a few years ago when I first got on the MIF board with the fact that we had so many silos in Connecticut. Mm-hmm. And we're a teeny little state. Right. And you know, I kept thinking, oh, my gosh, we're, we're all beating each other up. We're tripping over each other. We're not using our resources as effectively. This makes no sense. And this year... And this isn't to toot their horn, but I'm I'm just so thrilled because I, I can't believe they got this done. But CBIA, in conjunction with CONSTEP, in conjunction with this um, group that Jill's a part of, yeah. advocated with the legislature and the governor to get a manufacturing czar. And, you know, as tough as the state economy is right now, the fact that they're um, 
their 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 request was so well crafted, and that they really had yeah. the 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 data and the information to back the the claim for the need. It, it's being funded, and I think that's going to be pivotal to changing the direction the state's in because we're now going to have a central resource through which all this stuff can funnel yeah. instead of all these silos. Yeah. yeah. Bev's talking about the um, CMC, the Connecticut Manufacturing Collaborative, and it's like nine different um, groups and associations throughout the entire state that are coming together. And I, initially when it was being put together, you know, people were trying to make sure that, you know, this I do this really well and I do this really and don't tell me how to do it. But in the end, it was we were all – there were a few things that we were all doing separately, but we're working towards the same goal. And we said, let's just work on that together. And that's why um, it got really super hyper-focused on needing a manufacturing czar. And um, it was just really incredible to see that, oh, I'm, I'm, to see people work together. And yeah. it was... I, I, I just am so excited for what they accomplished. Yeah. And what it speaks to is when you do have a collaboration like that and you get you get the private sector um, working to address what you see is is a crisis in your state and at the you know in the public sector, so to speak. What you how you can move mountains, yeah. And this is, I think, going to be a game changer for Connecticut because they're going to get insight they've never had before. Yeah, that's great to hear. And 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 uh, you know, in particular, because you're right, the uh, aerospace and defense sector, you know, Pratt. Electric Boat, Sikorsky, they get the headlines a lot more than all of the other manufacturing companies who are making very successful products in all kinds of industries like your two companies. Uh, and and they don't get – you don't get nearly the attention yet you're a vital part of our economy and, and a vital part of what makes Connecticut uh, what it is today. Any final thoughts as we uh, wrap up on the program about how – we need to continue to move forward as a state or how your companies will continue to be successful? For me, I think it's a matter of um, all of us making sure that we're always interacting together, uh, not only both uh, businesses with business-to-business -business relationships, but I think also with uh, within our community and with the state. Our legislators... Um, I know they understand the, the 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 challenges we have, but they are somewhat beholden to their voters. But what I think they don't understand is that we are as committed to helping their voters as they are, and that what if we can get past that mindset, we would see Connecticut be the Connecticut it was in the '60s. Because that was Connecticut then. Mm -hmm. And the resources then become much greater, both at the private and public, within the private and public sector. At this point now, it's so heavily um, uh, driven and, 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 and managed by the public sector mm -hmm. that it's, it's too much to a burden yep. to carry. Yep. And we need to shift that. But but you can't unless the resources are there. That's right. And I would just add too to that: um, shifting the mindset is also um, a critical piece. To that would be, um, you know, changing kind of the negative recording of um, and and finding a positive side to it. I mean, we talked earlier about community and you know getting involved and um, not just giving back, but 
but reaching out. And, and I know that we've all been kind of disenfranchised by the whole, by the whole thing. But I think that if, if we work together and we work on the same issues together and, and, um, there's more of a camaraderie there, I think it's, we can get through it. You know, I really, I really do, despite some of the things that have been happening, happening lately, I think that we can get through it if we work together and we stay positive. Yeah. You know, well, uh, well, and I also, I get very frustrated sometimes because I have a lot of friends who've left Connecticut. Mm-hmm. Um, but when all is said and done and you ask them how it is where they live, given the choice, they'd be back here. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I think, the greatest tragedy in all this. Yeah. Is that it's an economically driven circumstance and one that is bringing us to a downward spiral. Right while those other states are thriving from our loss. And I think we, we can and we will shift it, but it has, you know, the time is here. It's now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and part of it is, you know, Connecticut as a state, all of us in Connecticut, for some reason, we have this unfortunate trait of seeing the glasses half empty instead of half full. Whenever something negative happens, we're going to go wallow in it and, oh, aren't we awful? In fact, in this morning's Hartford Current, there's an article on the front page by one of the business reporters talking about STEM education in the state and uh, you know how woefully behind we are, and it quotes Joe Brennan from CBIA and so forth, and it's a very negative article. Yet, a month ago or two months ago, uh, we were up at UConn at the School of Engineering at the new Innovation Partnership Center interviewing uh, a student who is a graduating senior from UConn who is one of uh, 300 students who had pro- part, uh, partnership projects with companies in Connecticut that helped the business solve a problem, educated the students, and really prepared them for the workforce. So I think, you know— We've got a lot of good things that are happening that we're not doing a very good job of shining a light on. And I don't want to, you know, pretend that we don't have challenges. God knows we do. But there are some really good things going on, uh, uh, whether it's UConn's engineering school or whether it's, you know, advanced manufacturing and as Nuntuck or Tunxis or, or other places. And, and, and now adding to that, the work that you all are doing as manufacturers getting together and, and moving the ball forward. Actually, it's interesting you bring that up because one of my personal – um, observations of, I think, one of the most underrated uh, jewels right now in the state is the Fairchild Wheeler Magnet School in Bridgeport. Mm-hmm. That school is, I think, the blueprint to Connecticut STEM education. They've really got it nailed down. Yeah. They're extraordinarily successful. The way their curriculum is designed is exactly what everyone's talking about, which is employer-driven what are the needs the employers are going to have in the next 10 to 15 years so that curriculum stays relevant yeah. and it is it, it is it is an astonishing place in the success ratio of the, for the students that are graduating from there which is you know i think i think 65 or 70% of those students are from bridgeport yeah is amazing and we don't talk about that and we're not you are not working with the with that yeah. enough, yeah. And, and I think it's it's on us as manufacturers. We have as much of a responsibility to talk about what is working because we have plenty to say about what's not working. Right. But if we don't speak up about what is working, then we get frustrated if that goes away. So um, we need to do both. Yeah, that's a great note to end on. 
I'd like to thank you both. Jill Mayer, CEO of Beat Industries, and Beverly Dacey, President and CEO of Amidex, for joining us today. I'm Martin Geitz, President and CEO of Simsbury Bank, and thank you all for listening in to Simsbury Bank's Manufacturing Matters. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.